You've got neurosurgery, gastrointestinal surgery, heart surgery, cardiovascular, radiology. I have no idea how many others there are. In the attempts to fix you, there's a lot of different ways people can open you up. Thankfully, I've never had to learn about any of these different surgeries from a user's perspective, but I know plenty of people who have. At least from my next guest's educated opinion, I've also learned that you can put off some types of surgery, orthopedic types that is, simply by living a healthy lifestyle. So besides being the father of a good friend of mine, Dr. David Amiro has been practicing as a doctor of medicine for over 40 years and performed orthopedic surgery for 31 of those years. He has served for over 10 years in chief of surgery and associate chief of surgery roles in Halifax and has received teaching awards with the Dalhousie Medical School. In between all that, he's raised two children with his wife, Kate. This is Mike Syme on how to be an orthopedic surgeon. So thank you very much for taking time out of your day to come. It means a lot to me. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. One thing I want to make sure I get correct for anybody listening is that although you are working part-time and semi-retired, it's still accurate for me to call you a orthopedic surgeon? Yes, I'm still an orthopedic surgeon, yeah. So like you mentioned to me earlier, although you are still an orthopedic surgeon, you are currently working part-time. So what does that exactly mean for your workload? Yeah, I um, I retired from surgery about a year and a half ago, uh, and I think that uh, I didn't want to just stop completely. So I thought there was a need for uh, people to be seen in consultation. So I was approached by a group that had a clinic with sports medicine docs there, and they were looking for a consultant to help. And so I work there two half days a week, Mike, and I do help out a little bit uh, doing other things. I still help out at the med school a little bit and help up a little bit with the residency program in terms of examining residents and that sort of thing. But for the rest of the time, I just do my own thing. So I'm sure there's got to be a better word for it than retirement because, at least in your case, and I think it's similar for a lot of people uh, with your experiences, you haven't quite stopped completely. You're just kind of pulling yourself back a little bit at least from this intensity that you've been working at for the last couple of decades. Yeah, I think that, uh, as we talked a little earlier, perhaps the um, concept now is a transition. When it comes to retirement from a job like this with such a high reward factor in terms of the work that you did, sometimes it makes it difficult to give up. I think if you put some thought behind it and you reach a certain age, then you have to sort of get a sense of yourself that uh, maybe it's time to move on. So for my case... I stopped doing surgery, but I still see patients in consultation, offer advice, administer treatment and uh, care that uh, is non-surgical. And if the patients do need care, then I refer them to some of my colleagues that are still operating now. Regarding your partial retirement, one of the things you mentioned you've stepped back from is the actual surgery itself. So in the life of an orthopedic surgeon, what other elements remain after you pull yourself back from the operating room? In the role of a surgeon, I think maybe people have a wrong impression of what a surgeon does in that he doesn't just operate. He has to see patients, talk to them, and see them, and see what the issues are. And you might take two people that have a a severely arthritic knee, and they will have identical-looking physical findings. They'll have identical x-rays, but one patient has a better pain tolerance, does not want an operation, the other patient does. There's a fair amount of decision-making as to who should get the surgery and whether there's a risk factor in terms of that person getting the surgery. So the, the surgical aspect of what we do as surgeons is just a, a part of the job. A lot of it's a, a patient interaction that perhaps maybe only about 45 to 50 percent of that population will come to an operation. There are others you can treat with you know injections or physio or weight loss or other modalities that might allow them to get by 
so they don't need the operation right away. So without going too much further, I suppose we should actually tell people what orthopedic surgery actually is. So my understanding is that orthopedic surgery, in very general terms, is more about life improvement rather than a requirement to continue living. Yeah, that's exactly right, Mike. I think people think that orthopedic surgery means foot surgery. Asked your question a little earlier about where does the term come? Orthopedic means straight child, and that's a historic reference that uh, in the earlier years of medicine, uh, the orthopedic surgeon was called upon to help straighten limbs in young children, and that's where the term came from. So it involves treatment of all aspects of the musculoskeletal system, so it could be arthritis of the hip or knee or any joint. It could be uh, back surgery. It could be foot and ankle surgery, shoulder surgery. Things have become highly specialized now. So even though people have a general interest in orthopedics, we all do trauma, but most people nowadays will have a specialty in some aspect of uh, orthopedic surgery, like joint replacement or sports medicine or back surgery, that sort of thing. So while we're on this subject, I'm going to try to connect some dots for myself here. A number of years ago, my dad had a weird fall and tore a bunch of ligaments in his knee, and I know he had a surgery as a result of that. So would that have been an orthopedic surgeon who put his knee back together? Yeah, (laughs) that would have been an orthopedic surgeon, yeah. I'm not sure why. I only was struck with that question now, but I'm glad I know. But back when you were starting out, was this concept of surgery and operation something that drew you to the field of medicine? Yeah, I think it's a seductive specialty in that uh, the surgery that we deal with is an intervention that will improve their quality of life, and uh, the rewards are high both for the patient and for the surgeon. One of the highest yield per dollar spent is joint replacement, I think second to uh, cataract surgery. So for the amount of money that you spend to get an intervention surgically in terms of improvement of quality of life, uh, joint replacement is extremely high, and patients are quite satisfied generally. Was surgery specifically something you could have seen yourself doing, or was it really just medicine and being a doctor in general that you found appealing? Oh, yeah. I think it's the latter, Mike. Uh, When I was um, younger, I had no idea what an orthopedic surgeon did. And uh, for me, it was really a sense that I thought I might want to go into medicine. And uh, so I did enroll in sciences when I went to Dow. And I played football at Dow at the time. And, uh, you know, so you're exposed to lots of... um, yeah, sports injuries, and also we had a, a team doctor at that time who I think uh, was one of the first sports medicine physicians around, and he, he had an interesting type of practice, an interesting type of approach, and evaluating uh, injuries. And if you're involved in sports, which I think is one of the things that uh, is a commonality among a lot of orthopedic surgeons, they did play some sports, and their colleagues or they themselves had been injured. Some of them may have had surgery as well, and that did pique their interest because they then got an exposure as to what this person does. So, I mean, if you were one of these individuals that uh, required a surgery at kind of a young age from a sports injury or something like that, you really are getting an insight into the life, at least a little bit, of what it's like to be a surgeon. Because as a patient, you're not just getting operated on. You were uh, get, developing a bit of a rapport with the doctor, I believe. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the first of all, there's the, the first meeting and then the decision to operate, mm-hmm. and then the care continues until the complete recovery. So uh, it's not as if you just operate on them and never see them again. And that goes on for a long time. And certainly for things like joint replacement, uh, these people get followed you know, long-term to see that there's no problems with the joint. Before you started your career, did you have any of these very beneficial or positive patient-doctor interactions that helped guide you into medicine or being an orthopedic surgeon? Or for that matter, did you have anyone at all? 
surgeon or otherwise who you would have felt was influential in guiding your career path? No, I didn't really. I think it was just the sort of being around it a lot and just seeing. I never I had was fortunate enough not to get really badly hurt. I broke a few bones, but nothing very serious. But uh, I was fortunate enough to see uh, someone in action, you know, who had done this. And also, once I became a medical student, I also had further exposure to this type of surgery. That did pique my interest then. Was the norm kind of the same as it is today? Did you go straight from high school into an undergraduate degree? Yeah, I, I graduated from high school. I went to the Catholic high school here in town, St. Pat's. And then when I graduated, um, they wanted me to go to St. Mary's to play football, but uh, I made the decision to go to Dow instead. So I did take sciences, and it was still difficult even then to get into medical school. I applied one year and didn't get in, and I did another year of study and did get in. And so subsequent to that, though, I, I graduated, and though I had an interest in orthopedic surgery, they had um, asked me to go into an orthopedic specialty. So that meant at the time, when you finished your internship, you could go into general practice of medicine, like family medicine, or you could go into a subspecialty. And they had asked me if I would go into orthopedic surgery while I was an intern. I felt that I'd been in school long enough, and I was broke and uh, wanted to get a bit of a life and see some other things. And so I did go into a rural general practice of, of medicine. After three years, I felt that I, I wanted to go back and study, so I went back and uh, took up orthopedic surgery. Now, I did like both jobs immensely. I liked the general practice a lot someone who does general practice, they would be the person who I see when I go to a walk-in clinic, for example? Yeah, they're a general practitioner. But in a rural general practice, uh, you're attached to a hospital and you have other responsibilities. You cover emergency, you deliver babies, you uh, perform certain types of surgery, minor procedures, that sort of thing. You assist at surgery. So in those days, it was a something a more traditional type of family practice where now as a walk-in clinic, most of those people don't have hospital privileges and they just do a strictly an office practice. So it's a little bit different now. That experience you had as a general practitioner before you specialized in orthopedics, would you say that's kind of a good path for people to choose if they're not sure what they want to specialize in? Can't do it now. You can't have that gap. No, you have to make a choice in um, third year what your track's going to be. Are you going to be a family physician or you're going to do a specialty. When did that change? I changed about 15 years ago, I guess. Yeah. And so that, that option's closed now. Things were a little bit different then. And I think now the perhaps the level of debt that students have is enormous. It makes it a bit prohibitive. The fact that they're a little older when they get into medical school anyway, if they go out and work for three years as a family medicine person, and then come back and, you know, they're, they're late 30s by the time they get practicing surgery. So it's, it, it's, it's changed a little bit, Mike. It's not as simple as that, but it was a good option when we had it. So I assume just like in any profession, three years working on a more general level must have given you a pretty great basic understanding of the job and especially improved your ability to interact with patients? Yeah, I think that uh, that's the nature of the game in medicine is that uh, you have to be able to communicate with people. You have to be able to understand uh, the human condition. I think that uh, there are a number of things that we don't know. There are still mysteries as to why people are the way they are. But that is the beauty of medicine. It's a pretty imperfect science, you know. You're, you know a lot of textbook information. You know, know a lot of anatomy and physiology. But once the human factor, the brain and emotions and whatnot get involved, then you have to be able to put that all in context. So it does give you an appreciation how difficult it is for the family doctors that are out there now working in that they have to deal with a, a huge population with a number of complaints. And I always used to liken it to the fact that you are a jack of all trades, but a master of none. 
hence sometimes there's a comfort zone that some of the current family doctors don't have and they refer things fairly quickly. Whereas in the old days, and particularly in a small rural area, you were it. And so the next place was 150 miles away. And so, you know, uh, you had a a certain confidence level that perhaps uh, some have now and some don't. Confidence. It's funny. I, I really wouldn't have expected that to be a trait required by doctors. Like in my mind, uh, well, what I used to think anyway, is that I'd go see a doctor and it'd be a black and white scenario. They identify what is wrong with me and they tell me what to do. I guess it's not quite so black and white. No, I mean, you can tell them what it is, but uh, then you can tell them what your choices are in terms of uh, how you're going to approach it. You know, there are certain things that people will present with that you know that the natural history is that these patients will do fine if you don't operate on them. Yeah. One of the things I find so interesting, and for me, it'd be super stressful if I were a doctor, you are giving these patients recommendations, but they're more or less just, uh, you know, they're substantiated opinions, but they're still opinions on how to improve. Yeah, well, I think that's a a good way to put it, Mike, because at the time it was opinion, and some of it wasn't based on real science. So over the last 20 years, uh, people have really morphed to evidence-based medicine. So there were a lot of high-cost surgical interventions that if you did a prospective randomized study and compared one group that had surgery or some type of surgery and another group that didn't and evaluated the outcome later, you may find there's no difference in in the groups. Therefore, you have to question, should you do this operation? And there, and I think that's the, the beauty of what's going on in medicine now. And I think that's one of the important things in orthopedics is that uh, people have really gotten into evidence-based practice, which uh, A, is the right thing to do, and B, saves a lot of money. Of the scientist aspect of being a doctor or, say, the uh, relating to patients aspect, was there one part that you thought you really excelled at in your career? I don't know, Mike. I get tough to answer that. Um, I, I, you can't have one without the other. You can't exact your physical or your, your surgical capability on a person if you haven't made the right decision. And one of my uh, old senior mentors used to say, it's not the incision, it's the decision. So the decision to operate has to be for the right reasons. And then if you make the right decision, then it's up to you to do the proper surgical technique to make them better. Can you tell me about some of the rewarding elements of being an orthopedic surgeon that kept you coming back day after day? Yeah, well, I think that um, we are all prisoners when it comes to developing arthritis and musculoskeletal aches and pains. And uh, people respond to pain in different ways. I think that uh, they, they are concerned they've got something terribly wrong with them or the impact on their quality of life is going to be so great that they, you know, they don't know what's going to happen to them. So if you have a, a broad knowledge of what the natural history of the problem is and what interventions you could do, either non-operative or operative, I think that's reassuring to the patient. And then I think that you still get reward by telling someone that they don't need an operation, and the patient is very happy to hear that because no one wants to have surgery. By the same token, if you've got someone who's in such pain and their quality of life is so bad, you can intervene in their life and completely change their life. And there's not very many specialties, and I've said this before to some of my colleagues, that um, when you've intervened and fixed someone who's had a severely painful arthritic hip, and at their last clinic visit, when you say to them, okay, Mr. Brown, I don't have to see you again, or uh, Mrs. Brown usually, but Mrs. Brown would jump up and give you a little kiss on the cheek to say thank you, you know? give you a hug because you've changed the quality of life, you know? It is. It's pretty rewarding, i got to say. Has that draw been with you since day one? Job satisfaction is important no matter what you do. 
And that was a big part of the job satisfaction. What did your parents think about your decision to go into med school? Well, I guess, uh, you know, I think my mother thought I was going to be a priest, but that didn't work. You know, I mean, everybody's proud to have their kid as a doctor, I think. You know, everybody kind of likes that. And so, um, oh, yeah, they were happy with that. Was it, uh, did it run in the family at all? Did you have any? No, my father was a bartender. Okay. And uh, my mother worked as a secretary. And we were four boys. And uh, I'm really the only one that went to university, really. But the other guys all had successful careers as well as what they did. David, with your manual work required from surgery, I have to ask, when you played football when you were younger, were you a receiver? No, I was a lineman, if you can imagine, yeah. I do find it kind of funny that at the end of the day, you go through you know, tremendous amounts of education to become a doctor and even more to become a surgeon, but a lot of the value that's derived from that role is done through your hands in the form of surgery? Well, it is true, Mike. It's, um, it's all about dexterity and uh, doing the procedure. And with repetition, you get really quite good at it. And some of the way things are done now are far better than uh, we used to before. Um, now they have um, skills labs and you have an opportunity for the residents to practice on models first and then on cadavers. And then, then they can go to the OR and actually, uh, under your guidance, uh, perform part of or soon all of the operation. I feel like to the uninformed, uh, the idea of working with cadavers or people who have donated their bodies to kind of the advancement of medicine and science, that idea is a little bit morbid. But in reality, that has got to be one of the most valuable ways for a student to advance his or her knowledge. Oh, yeah. I I think, unfortunately, um, anatomy exposure to uh, actual dissection in in medical school has really diminished now because of the the career tracks that people take. And it all depends on your level of interest. If you if you're, have a surgical bent, then it's much more important to you, and you would spend some more time at it, I think. Uh, but there's no question that there's no substitute for actually examining and looking at the tissue. I mean, it's as old as the profession. Even if you're not a surgeon, if you're talking about anatomy, what you're dealing with is surface anatomy, but you got to know what's underneath. Of these different procedures, like you mentioned hip, knee, uh, ankle, shoulder, that kind of thing. I assume there's one or two of them that you must have done many, many times before. Correct, yeah. So during any one of these procedures, which you've done countless times, have you ever began the operation and looked inside and thought, oh boy, that's not where that's supposed to be, or anything like that? Does that ever happen? Well, it, it, um, when you approach uh, a surgery, uh, say for example around the hip, if you're going to operate on someone's hip, there's about six different ways to approach the hip. You can go from the front, from the back, from the side, from outside, inside. So you have to be familiar with all the territory around there in terms of where you're going. Same with every, every joint has a different exposure, front, back, sideways. Uh, now that a lot of the surgery is being done through minor little incisions, you know, through arth- arthroscopic surgery, some minimally invasive types of surgery, the incisions have gotten smaller. But, you know, when you go into the hip uh, and all of a sudden you're seeing something that's not normal, then you know you've got a problem. Which does, I assume that has happened? Oh, lots of times, yeah. 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 And so that's... uh... (laughs) You hope it doesn't because you don't want a surprise. You want to know what you're after when you get there. And so you don't want to go on a fishing expedition. You have to have done your investigations beforehand. But once in a while, you do get a surprise. So even still, I mean, after you've properly done all your pre-operating procedures and all your research and and, uh, you know, insight into the patient and all that, there's still, I'm sure, plenty of times where something kind of goes wrong. And in that situation, 
it does fall to you to decide what to do next? Yeah, I mean, that, uh, there, there's no place uh, that that's more applicable than trauma. And so that uh, when people come in after a bad car accident and they're usually pretty broken up and uh, you haven't got the full, all the pieces to work with. And so now you've got to find some innovative ways to try and restore the structure of the limb. And uh, some of those are, you know, tried and true, but some of them you have to innovate on the spot because of what you've been dealt with that day. How would one prepare themselves for these trauma scenarios where someone is rushed in and there is limited time to prepare for something like this? Well, I think you, if you're doing that type of surgery, you have to be aware of the options that you have. And so you're tested on these sorts of things, you know. So you're given oral examinations, written examinations to cover most of the things you're going to be faced with. Then on top of that, if you know the literature and if you've kept up with what's going on, then you can also look at what was done in the past that worked and look what's being done now in the future that still works. Because every once in a while, you have to go way back to a, you know, a tried and true method to get you out of trouble at least that night uh, and stabilize the patient until such time as then you can go back and do something more definitive. Yeah. I think it's fair to say for all surgeons they have to be able to uh, respond well under pressure. Yes, you do. you got to be able to go with the flow and keep your cool. And so did you know that about yourself before you went into medicine, that you'd respond well under pressure? I don't know that, Mike. I never thought of it. But it just uh, happened that I did. Yeah. 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 So much of what you do is kind of coded with this, you know, lots of emotion, uh, whether it's the patient or the patient's family. Is there a method you have to not take that home with you when your day is done? Well, I, I think that uh, over time you get a little immune to that sort of thing. When you're first starting out, uh, you, you always second-guess yourself a little bit. Maybe I should have done this a little bit better, that a little bit better. What you do remember is the complications, that if you had a complication of an infection or some other surgical complication that was an act of commission, you know, that happened at the time of the surgery. People wear that uh, for quite a while, you know, because it's a person on the receiving end of that. And you have to take your time and talk to those patients and explain to them what happened and, and uh, you rectify it. And uh, surgery is uh, one of those things that you have to be very respectful of because uh, if you're not on your game and something happens, then uh, you may think you're pretty good stuff, but then nothing will knock you down quicker than a complication. So. At the end of those bad days, uh, who do you vent to? Uh, who, what's your kind of support network? Yeah, usually your wife, and, and sometimes uh, you have colleagues that do the similar type of work that you commiserate with, and at least uh, we have these uh, mortality and morbidity rounds in which we discuss complications and, and uh, resolution to those complications, what could be done to avoid it in the future. So it's not something that gets hidden. It's right out there for everybody to see. And that, I mean, for lack of a better word, is that a support group type thing? You know? uh, it's a, yeah, it's basically a support group because uh, anyone that's, any surgeon in the city has never had a complication is not telling the truth. Right. I think that um, going through that process of um, evaluating what went wrong, uh, you know, the cause and effect uh, relationship between what was done and what the problem was and how to not let it happen again is positive for everybody. It's positive for the, uh, the person, the sur- surgeon involved, plus his colleagues that also were involved in the discussion will pay attention to that aspect of the surgery as well. So, David, since you're the first person I've spoken to on this podcast that has kids, I'm curious about the impact you think your job, and actually your, your wife's in a medical field as well, right? Yeah, she's a pharmacist, yeah. Yeah, so do you think that your kids growing up with a doctor and a pharmacist for parents 
uh, would have influenced them in their careers? Well, I think it does have an effect. I mean, uh, my own son, Joe, is an orthopedic surgeon. And uh, my daughter, uh, of course, she's uh, involved in the caring profession. She's a social worker. And, but I, I think that um, if you look at the applicants to medical school, a fair number of them have family members that are doctors. And so it seems to come with the territory. It's something they grew up with. It's something they are aware of, what you do. And that does have an impact on some people. There are there are, you know, some family members, though, uh, the children say that's the last thing in the world they want to do. They don't, you know, maybe their dad was never home or whatever the reason is. So to balance work obligations with your family, in your experience, has that been difficult? Yes. Uh, I mean, it, it can be difficult, especially if you're a small number of group in a group, you know. We we're, we're fortunate in that we had a, a fair number of guys that we all took call. Uh, when you have to take call, you're on call for 24 hours or and the whole weekend you're on call. And so if, if you have uh, only four or five guys taking call, that's, that's a, a, you know, every fourth or fifth weekend you're working. Uh, but if you have 10 guys taking call, it's a lot different. So guys or girls, um, it does impact on your life that way. And Lots of times you're working Christmas and everybody's off and New Year's or whatever the holidays are. It's just the way life is. But that's that's part of the job, you know. And you find yeah. your balance? Yeah, it's always a, a, a balancing act between your work and your family, you know. I mean, some people are totally wedded to their job at the expense of their family, and uh, no one really gains from that in the long term, I think. Yeah. The students nowadays have a better sense of work-life balance as well. You know, the days of uh, sacrificing everything for your job, I, I think, are gone for the most part. Uh, people have a, have a good sense of responsibility, but they're trying to achieve a better work-life balance than we did, I think, a lot of the time. So I don't think there's anybody on earth who's enjoyed every single aspect of their job. With that in mind, has there ever been parts of your career that, uh, in your opinion, you could have done without if you didn't have to do them? Well, that is true, Mike. I think that um, when you're working, uh, at some point in your life, it depends on where you are, but for the most part, as you become a little bit more senior, you're expected to probably take on a few more leadership roles. And so if you get to these positions like a, a chief of surgery or a chief of orthopedic surgery or whatever the role is, you're now you're dealing with personalities on another level. And so, and also you're dealing with other forces that you can't control, whether they be government, government funding or hospital funding or... And there are some things that sometimes you feel the solution is looking at you right in the face, but you can't effect the change. And so sometimes that gets a little frustrating. And I think that it's an issue that uh, every once in a while you'll get some quiet wins and things work out pretty well. And, and uh, it depends on your group and how you're supported, uh, how successful you are at that, I find. And so that uh, it can be a very rewarding experience, but probably the frustration, any frustration I experienced in my career was probably to deal with the administrative aspect of it. But that was pretty small potatoes in the end. It was all pretty good to me. Though I suppose that if you're a student going through school, the last thing on your mind is probably potential politics and administrative issues that might be slowing you down in 15 years' time. No. No, you don't think of that at all. You don't, you, don't, you don't have a clue how things work when you first start, no. Really just coming down to it, has there ever been a day or a couple of days in your whole career where you've come home from work and you've lied awake in bed and you've just thought, why, oh, why did I become an orthopedic surgeon? Never. Never. Enjoyed it every minute of it, yeah. Even when it was the toughest going, even with the administrative headaches and so on, 
it was always the surgery that sort of saved the day. It was the fact that you were doing surgery and treating patients were the most important part of the practice. The other stuff was ancillary, and it had it was a necessary thing to do, and it had its frustrations. But if you were still grounded in looking after patients and doing surgery, that's what made the difference. Besides the part of your career that drew a salary, I know that a lot of the work you've done in your career has been volunteer work in different parts of the world. But even as I say, like volunteer, it's, I mean, it's not quite, it's a little more in depth than what I might traditionally think of when I think of a volunteer experience. Well, it is, it is volunteer work, uh, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a high, high level volunteer work with uh, a lot, it's resource intensive, both in terms of personnel and resources. And so, yeah, I've done some of that. I remember way back when I was in junior high, hearing that you and your family would go down to Cuba and that you were taking part in these different volunteer efforts there. Was Cuba your first time doing something like that? Yeah, it really was the first place. Um, at the time, um, one of my colleagues, uh, Dave Alexander, had set up a relationship with someone down there. Uh, we'd meet uh, the surgeons, see the patients. Um, we would perform some surgeries there with them and leave the material there. And we did that for several years, and it was a great exchange. Uh, the level of knowledge there was uh, quite surprising given the situation they were in at the time. And what years would this have been roughly? Uh, it was probably uh, in about 2003, 2004, starting there for about the next seven or eight years we started that. So what happened there was that the, uh, the U.S. had a law on the books called the Helms-Burton Law, which means that if you were doing business with Cuba, you were trading with the enemy. The equipment that we required was given to us by the companies, and the, most of the parent companies are in the United States. And so once they decided that they were going to enforce the Helms-Burton Law, then uh, these guys were told that if they were going to travel to the United States, they might be blackballed and they would be not allowed in the country, which for them would be a showstopper for their career. So we had to stop going because we had no equipment to take them. So theoretically, if uh, this were to start back up again today, there'd be no issues? Or Yeah, that's right. I think it wouldn't be a problem. They'd welcome it with open arms, yeah. For some reason, I, I feel like uh, compared to at least the other Caribbean islands, or maybe in general, the Cuban healthcare system, or at least the level of training, is certainly higher than what you might expect as a Canadian. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, on the whole, um, their expertise in terms of diagnostic skills and uh, decision-making was as good as any in North America. Did you learn much Spanish from your time in Cuba? Well, I was working on Spanish there for uh, quite a bit, but uh, then we, once we stopped going, I stopped practicing it, but I'm, I'm yeah. studying French now. So, If you're learning French, uh, I assume that has to be related to your work in Haiti post-earthquake. So what year was that earthquake? The, uh, the earthquake was in 2010, I believe, and uh, we went there. I went, I went three or four times, I guess, I was there. But it was after the earthquake. It was probably within a year and a half after the earthquake. When you go on these different volunteer trips, what's the breakdown of your work? Are you mostly educating and training other surgeons, or are you actually doing some procedures yourself too? Well, Haiti was a little... When we would go to uh, Cuba, we would take myself and David Alexander, and we would take one or two other surgeons with us and some of the detail guys who knew all the equipment. Uh, the, the trip to Haiti uh, required a team of about 23 people, and uh, the emergency room docks were the busiest when we went there. It was, there was a lot of um, violence and problems there, so they were very busy. So what are the major differences when you go into volunteer at a hospital in Haiti versus, say, when you show up to work in Halifax? In Halifax, you know what you have. 
okay? So you know what the equipment is. That's the biggest thing. You can pretty well deal with anything, you know, if, you, if there's some solution to any problem you've got when it comes to having equipment. You can find a solution how to fix this problem. And when you're down there, you have to have an inventory of what equipment is there because you don't want to start this case and not be able to finish it because you haven't got the equipment to work with. You have to keep your wits about you in order to, uh, you know, do the case and get the thing finished. What's it like working with uh, patients from Cuba and Haiti? My gut's kind of telling me that they're a bit of a more resilient population than maybe we are here in Canada. Oh, they're tremendously resilient. I mean, uh, at the time, when we first started going to, uh, say, Cuba, for example, the length of stay in hospital in Canada maybe was about five days after a hip replacement. In Cuba, it was one day. The patients were up and gone the next day. And in Haiti, same thing. And so they are very strong and resilient. And the uh, amount of pain medication they take is minuscule compared to what yeah. people in Canada would take, yeah. So in hindsight, I assume those volunteer experiences were all pretty valuable to your career? No, I mean, they were very rewarding. Uh, you know, I think it was, uh, it was rewarding and, and you got to see a different culture and, you know, you realize how hard people really have it in you know, some of these places. It makes you very thankful for your, for your quality of life here in Canada. Do you think it's important for a doctor's career, or I suppose really anyone for that matter, to look for these type of volunteer opportunities? I think so. I think it's a good idea. I mean, uh, I mean, now in the medical school, they have northern uh, postings, you know, where you can go up to uh, Nunavut and places like that because, uh, you know, we're not immune to having our own problems here in the indigenous population and northern communities and so on. Uh, yeah, I think it's a good idea. I think it's really helpful. So at the end of the day, what determines where you spend your volunteer hours? I mean, it seems from the news that there's so many places in the world that could use assistance. So what narrows it down for you guys? It's really limited by the amount of time you have. You're taking time away from work. Uh, usually you're not getting paid. And uh, now for the nurses and uh, the group that we took when we would go to Haiti, we would have fundraisers and that would help pay for their flight and that sort of thing. But still, they were taking a week of vacation, of their vacation time. If you've only got four weeks vacation, that's one week that you're working in Haiti. And that, that's a, a real credit to the nurses and the people that went with us. So, One thing we haven't really mentioned is that the internet first came online right over the course of your career. So you must have witnessed some pretty sweeping changes as a surgeon. Oh, no question. Uh, everything um, in terms of the access to information, instead of having to go to the library and dig it out, you can dig out the article online. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's absolutely fantastic. I think that you can have access to this information now. So you can be up to date on the latest stuff. And even now in my stage of the career where I'm not operating anymore, I do look at the stuff and I look at the, the up-to-date non-operative management of certain things. So people use the term lifelong learning and it sounds a little trite, but you have to be a lifelong learner or you're just going to get left behind. You're going to be in the dust. So without a doubt, this better access to information, I think, is certainly a benefit. But then on the flip side, I'm sure at some point you've had a patient come to you and talk like they know more about what's ailing them than what you know because they've Googled it. Well, that is true, and uh, that that uh, happens more often than not, and that uh, they may come in and they say, I, I want a, uh, a ceramic hip replacement. They, they'll be that specific. Yeah, they'll be that specific. Uh, and so the website that they may have looked at was an advertisement for 
the company. Uh, but then if you tell them that if you look at the literature, there might be a problem with this particular hip replacement, and therefore we don't do that operation. And now they may choose to go somewhere and get it done anyway, but I'm not going to offer it to them because they think that's what they want. It's not a menu a la carte, you know? So patients will literally come into your office and take up their time and your time, and if you're not willing to support what they've researched online, they'll go elsewhere. They will. That sounds pretty uh, irresponsible on the individual's part. Well, it happens, uh, you know, there's been some irresponsible behavior on the part of the physicians for putting that information out there in the first place. And so if you take, for example, the the issue of um, the stents they were putting in the uh, jugular vein for people with MS. That's multiple sclerosis. Yeah, multiple sclerosis. There was a, an Italian vascular radiologist who was putting stents which is a, like to open up the, the vein inside the vein. Like a straw kind of thing? Yeah, it's like, a, like to allow blood to flow better. And uh, he had cited uh, some response in which the patients did well after this operation. Uh, they had a little more movement. Well, then there was an avalanche of people having this operation. And then finally, this, it, rather than doing the science first and then exposing people to this procedure, they did the procedure and then they did the science. And after they reviewed the science, it didn't make any difference. And so people had these procedures done without any evidence that it worked. So when you go in for like a typical day of work in the hospital and doing various surgeries, is there a specific and like reliable structure to it all? Very, yeah. And that uh, you would probably do the hip replacements in the morning first, followed by the knee replacement, just because the physicality of the hip replacement is sometimes a little more difficult. And trying to, to do a hip replacement on a 270-pound man is difficult. And later in the day, when you're continuing with your list, a knee replacement is not as physically demanding. And, that, and then at the end of the day, you might do a knee scope or something like that. So you do, you're very regimented about your day. And everything in the OR is regimented as well. I mean, uh, when the patient comes in, there's a checklist, just like when you're on an airplane. You have to go through a checklist to make sure you've got the right patient, the right limb, the limb is marked, you've got all the equipment you need. You cannot proceed until everything is signed off by both the anesthesia, the surgeon, the nurses, and then away you go. You mentioned that you were into football when you were younger. And I know that you guys as a family skied quite a bit as well. Are you still a skier? Yeah, I still ski, yeah. So how has your career impacted your physical lifestyle? Does it change your habits or your physical behaviors at all in terms of staying healthy? I think that um, the single biggest thing I think you'll find with most orthopedic surgeons is that they are fit and they, they exercise and do things because you soon come to realize that uh, the secret to life is to stay in some sort of physical condition and that uh, it's good for your physical health and your mental health. I think by far and away, uh, when you're talking about mobility issues, that's what we deal with all the time. That's the whole point of what we do. You realize that if you don't use it, you lose it. And that you, the, the more you stay fit, the more you can put off a lot of health problems in general, not just your joints, but a lot of things, you know. Something I should probably tell you, David, is I occasionally participate in this phenomenon where friends, family, and I'm sure strangers too, will approach doctors they know outside of the office and ask medical questions about themselves. Does this happen a lot? And is it tough for you or for doctors in general to draw boundaries sometimes? Very common. Very common. Uh, I, well, it was interesting. You talk about this uh, skiing and being in the moment. 
There was a time that when I was skiing a lot and the family used to go, I mean, there were lots of people around that would come and ask you at lunch if they'd start talking to you about their aches and pains. And I'd have to say, look, I'm not here for this. You know, I'm here for something else. And, uh, you know, I don't mind doing that now. It's not not, uh, that onerous, you know. Um, There was a time that sometimes they used to show up at the door, though. People would just show up because they didn't know. Yeah, because they didn't know whether they wanted to go to the emergency department or not and that sort of thing. So... I had to draw the line there a little bit. I don't really have any good segues into this, but I have to ask because I'm curious. So being a doctor and a surgeon, especially in working in the hospital, you were around death far more than the average person. Does that impact you at all or the personal way you might cope with grief blend into your professional way that you might cope with grief? How does that work for your job? Well, I think the big thing, of course, with orthopedic surgery is that death is not a huge part of our practice. I mean, once in a while you're faced with that, and particularly when you have some of these major traumas that come in, and usually you're not the only one there. I mean, when some of these people come in and they're really in dire straits, there's the orthopedic surgeons, the general surgeons, the neurosurgeons, the vascular surgeons are all trying to trying to save this person, and sometimes their injuries are, are so severe that they succumb. And often they're young people, too, and that's that's pretty traumatic, you know. Uh, but you just do your best, and everybody's working together. And uh, if the patient doesn't survive, then it's unfortunate, but it wasn't meant to be. So, uh, you know, it's not, it's not something you deal with very often. And once in a while, some of the frail elderly patients will pass, you know, because we see a, a significant number of elderly patients that break their hip. And uh, by the time a person's in their 90s and they break their hip, they're getting near the end of life. And uh, sometimes during that period that they're in hospital, they will succumb as well just because of their age. That's where you have to deal with the family and talk with the family and explain things to them. And oftentimes everybody's kind of relieved that they didn't suffer and that things are over. By and large, death is not a huge thing in orthopedic surgery. I've spoken about this before and used doctors as an analogy. But one of the things I find so interesting about being a doctor or a surgeon again especially is that your day-to-day, your regular job is somebody else's very emotional day, whether that's the person that you're seeing who has the health issue or the family of that person, somebody you're dealing with is experiencing some type of joy, anxiety, or grief. Whereas if you look at, you know, accounting, it's like your example before, I'm not going to get a kiss on the cheek from someone by doing their taxes for them. They're not that excited about <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. it. So do you have to yeah. pull yourself back a bit if you don't want to be affected too much, whether it's Uh, giving great news to somebody or terrible news to somebody? I often talk about this thing called the empathy meter and that uh, if the empathy meter is too far to the right, then you're you're losing some objectivity. If it's too far to the left, then you're a little too cold-hearted. So you have to be somewhere in the middle that you understand, demonstrate that you understand, but that you still have to have the ability to say that this this is the course of action, this is what we have to do. You have to get up today. You have to walk. You know, it's better for you that you do that, that sort of thing. So it's a balance. Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, we need to start wrapping it up soon. But before that, I'd love to end on a lighter note. So there's a scene you see in movies all the time where a doctor needs to respond to a medical situation in the middle of a flight. David, with all the air travel I know that you've done, have you ever had to be that doctor? I have a couple of times. One of them, we were in LAX airport, and we were in a, on the runway. We were about the ninth car in the taxiway, and I was trying to make a connecting flight out of Toronto to get home. 
And I thought, now the last thing I need now is for someone to collapse on this plane. And that's exactly what happened. We had to take the plane back, but the family was eternally grateful. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the man survived. And in the end, the airline were tickled pink that someone stood up because a lot of people don't want to do that. But then they, they put you on a first-class flight to Chicago, Chicago, Toronto, and full service. And I guess certificate from American Airlines. So it worked out. <laughs> Being the good guy finally paid off. <laughs> David, thank you very much for coming. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, well, that's great, Mike. I really appreciated talking to you. It was a lot of fun. I hope it helps. Okay. After listening to this back for a bunch of hours while I was editing, I have a few takeaways from my time when I was speaking with David. The biggest would probably be that I haven't really thought of surgery as a spectrum before. I used to think that you needed surgery or you did not need surgery. At least in some cases, it sounds like there's both a literal and a personal cost-benefit analysis associated with the decision to operate. Thankfully, I live in the era of science-based medicine, and those decisions seem to be getting a bit easier. I've also never truly considered the huge difference between scheduled and emergency operations. After hearing the staggering amount of preparation and research that goes into a scheduled operation versus one that arises from an emergency, Well, I mean, I I don't want to get into an accident any more than I did before, but uh, I mean, yeah, I don't want to get into an accident. So at the end of the day, everyone, be nice to your knees, be nice to your hips, because you only get one set. Or though, if you meet somebody like David in your future, maybe you'll get a second one. So the next time you hear from me, we'll have moved from orthopedic surgery to the forest nursery. My next guest is Elise Holden a woman who, after a bit of meandering, has found some fulfilling work in the forest doing forestry. So if you don't know how to get into forestry or what someone in that role does, you're in good company because I didn't have any idea either. Thanks again for joining me. I had a great time.